I do hope that each of you had a good Christmas with your families. I hope that it was blessed, and I pray that Christ was at the center of all that you've done this holiday season. Um, just as a little appendix to what Pastor Kevin was saying earlier about um, perseverance in the Christian life, uh, it, it will kind of tie into my message today. The difference between the position that says that we come to Christ of our own free will, uninfluenced by anything, right, right. carries with it this connotation, especially when coupled with the doctrine of once saved, always saved, that you come to Christ, but once you're there, nothing that you do matters. Nothing that you do can get you out of it. You're locked in for life. Now, we would understand that a little differently because we would say, well, once you're saved, you are saved. But what we say is that was God that began that work in you, and the Bible says that he's going to finish it. Right. And, and there's going to be evidence. Yeah, and if that work has begun, there's going to be evidence. Your life's going to look different. Uh, genuine fruit of being born again is a continual life of repentance putting your leaving your sin behind and putting your faith in God and believing that God has given us everything that we need to be successful in the Christian life we do not depend upon our own strength for anything at all everything that we need to walk out this Christian life is given to us by God faith grace, repentance, it is all a gift of God. We have to exercise these things. We must walk in these things. And the genuine person will walk in these things. And so I think what Pastor Kevin was saying is that it's not this mechanical, I've prayed this prayer, and now, I mean, I've, I've heard people teach it. I mean, it don't matter. You can go become a Muslim, a Buddhist, a murder whatever and you're just good with God because you prayed a prayer when you were eight years old and that's just not anything historic that's not that's not what you see in scripture that's not what anybody has ever believed up until I I don't know the, I don't know when it started but it's yeah it's pretty uh, yeah cult, yeah culture change you're right so but I think it ties into what I'm gonna say today because I want to remind you guys that all of what we need for salvation all of what we need to live lives pleasing to God comes from God himself I was we've had a kind of long Advent season we've been preaching Advent messages we preached on the Advent candles, the hope of God, the peace of God, the love of God. And so we've, we've talked about the doctrine of the Incarnation. And those doctrines are good to reflect upon. I believe it was Martin Luther that said, at least the quote is attributed to him, that we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily because we oft forget it. 
There is, in the Christian life, there is no graduating from the gospel. Right. We don't move on from the gospel. The Christian message is the gospel. The Christian life is lived in light of the gospel. It is the timeless truth. And I was planning, I was fully intending to be back in Galatians today. And as I prepared my message for Galatians, the central theme of the book of Galatians, which is justification by faith alone, came to my mind. And sometimes it's good for us just to remind ourselves of these basic truths of Christianity. Salvation by grace through faith alone. So today, instead of being in Galatians, and I will get back to it eventually, I want, to, uh, I want you guys to turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus. Where this topic is heavily dealt with, as it is throughout the entirety of the epistle to the Galatians. And I want to read verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry. I'm in chapter 1. Sorry, guys. Chapter 2. I said chapter 2, and I read chapter 1. Rookie mistake. <laughs> Rookie mistake. I got excited. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's try chapter 2, 1 through 10. I was like, I got to verse 3, and I was like, um, hey, now. <laughs> All right, let's do chapter 2. Yeah. Wow. Um, still, uh, I guess, recuperating from Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time path he walked according to the chorus of this world, according to the prince and the power of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is, in ages to come, he might shew the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath ordained before ordained that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Lord, I thank you that you are the speaker. You are the one who makes your word effectual to the people that have ears to hear it. Father God, I thank you that even through my weakness, Lord, that you have chosen to bring your gospel, that you may be glorified. Father God, I pray that you would get my weaknesses and my finitude out of the way, Father, that you would get me out of the way, that you may be greatly praised among your people today for the glorious truths of your gospel and the sending of your Son on our behalf when we were yet sinners in rebellion to your truth. Father God, I just ask your benediction on all that we do here today and on the people who sit under the sound of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes it's a good thing to just confess that we need Jesus, right? And stuff like that's evidence of it. <laughs> we need Jesus. Uh, praise God. So we read... The second chapter of Ephesians, and we see the, the first few verses talk about the state of man prior to conversion, and then about the grace of God. When people ask me the question, what is the gospel? This is often one of the passages that I take them to. Tell them to go read. Read it until you understand it. Not until just you understand it in your mind, but read it until it gets down into the depth of your soul. Read it until the truth comes alive to you. Read it until you realize that your salvation that you have in Christ Jesus is all of grace and not of yourself. To forsake all confidence in the arm of the flesh. I, I thought it was great that we sang earlier, we sang stand up for Jesus, and there's a stand in there that says, uh, stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. And this is what this reminds us of. The weakness the corruption of our flesh, the inability of our flesh to do anything that would commend us before God, the utter failure of our flesh as we are united to Adam. And so... I, when I tell people that this is the gospel, they start reading it, and they read the first three verses, and they say, well, wait a minute. That's not the gospel. That's, that's a message of condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Right. 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 But a full-orbed presentation of the gospel must include what 
the Reformed have, have historically called the first use of the law. There are three uses of the law. The first use is to reveal the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. This is the universal truth. Romans chapter 3 says that all have sinned and fell, fallen short of the glory of God. The unrighteousness of man is a problem. Sin is a problem that every single one of us are infected with. And the universal truth is that God is righteous. He is the righteous judge and he has no fellowship with unrighteousness or with them that are therein. The second use of the law is a civil use called to er, use to restrain evil in men. So when we as a nation, when we as a society, um, we think about things like murder and thievery, um, these things are universally known to be wrong. Well, these things are from the law of God. And these things are universal truth that is put up on every man. We inherently know in our innermost being that these things are wrong. And so it's pretty universal to say that murder is wrong, thievery is wrong, adultery is wrong. Even if some people do these things, we still admit, even a murderer will admit, yeah, I done wrong. I've committed a crime. The depravity in it is that they don't see that they have ultimately offended God. As David said, and is that the 51st Psalm where he's confessing his sin to God, and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And so that is the depravity that they don't realize that it was not just a human being that they've offended, but they've offended a holy God. So the second, yeah, okay. The second, um, that so that's the second use of the law. It restrains evil. And the third use of the law is a guide to life for one who has been justified. We are all partakers as we are born in Adam of this sinful nature that is laid out here in the second chapter of Ephesians. It says, Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. Conversation here in the King James, I know it's a little different for us speaking modern English, but it just means lifestyle. We lived our lives in the lusts of our flesh, in the passions, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. So it's a, we all, so this is a universal statement. This statement doesn't just apply to some people. There are not some people who are sinners and others who 
never have and never will be sinners. This is a universal problem. So this passage is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. It is not saying there are these people and they're like this. This is unequivocally telling each of us that we are sinners and the only hope for sinners is a savior. So historically and biblically, when we begin our gospel presentation, we begin with that first use of the law. In order for somebody to see their need for Christ, they must first see the inherent righteousness that is in God and their utter depravity, their utter need for a Savior. You know, how do you convince a sick person they're sick and they need to go to the doctor? All they, you know, they need a diagnosis. Who aren't in Christ. And well, and here he is writing to those who are in Christ, but he's telling them unequivocally, he said, This was you. This was you. Yeah. It harkens back to Romans chapter one. And uh, if you don't have it marked, you might keep your thumb or put a piece of paper in Romans because we're going to be in Romans a lot today. Because as I was preparing this, I thought it. Um, Interesting that the first three chapters or the first three verses of Ephesians deal with the state of man as depraved, as sinner, as guilty before God, as the enemy of God. And then you think about it, and the first three chapters of Romans, Paul belabored this point. That all men are sinners. I want you to turn with me, if you would, real quick over to Romans, the first chapter of Romans. And I want to start in verse 18. The, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shewed it unto them, for the visible thing, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by these things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lust of their own hearts, 
to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Well, we'll skip down to verse 29, and it starts talking about the sins of these people that this passage is talking about. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetous, maliceness, or maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, impalpable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which committed adultery were, are worthy of death, not only do some of these, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is the state of every man. A lot of people have this false idea that a person becomes a sinner when they commit a sin. The truth of the matter is, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's what the truth of this passage in Ephesians and Romans is trying to tell us, that we are by nature this. We have inherited this estate from Adam, and we became haters altogether of God, and boastful, and haughty, and backbiters, inventors of evil. Man has invented evil. So you see, this is already starting to look a little bit like, you know, children of wrath walking after the courts of this world. And it's no different in, uh, in Romans chapter 2, the whole chapter here. And I'm not going to read it, but I'll just, now, I'll just point out here that it says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whatsoever thou judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemned thyself, for thou that judgest doth the same things. It is saying unequivocally that each person, no matter how we judge another person's sin and look up on another person's sin, we need to be careful and we need to remember where we are coming from as we do these things. Because as Christians, that's a lot of problems with, and I don't know so much that this fault falls on the Christian as it does on the person that is hearing the Christian talk. And I think this is why it matters how we talk to people about these things. Because a lot of times people have a tendency to hear a preacher standing up here talking about sin the way that I am now and thinking that, this verse, that these verses don't apply to him. That these verses don't apply to Christians. They just apply to the ones that we're out here talking to in the streets. And that's not true. 
This was the condition of every man. No man is different from another. The guy standing up here in front of you was just as big of sinner outside of Christ as you ever thought about being. I'll say that unashamedly because that's the truth of the matter. This is the condition of all men. And Paul spends these first three chapters of Romans and these first three verses of Ephesians talking about this. Romans 3, 1 through 20 talks about this. And these are just things that you guys can write down and go to look at later. But, you know, chapter 3 is where we get like... Uh, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, none that understands, none that seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way and altogether become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. I think the ESV translates there in verse 12, it says, together all have become worthless. So this is not just the condition of atheists and other people of other religions. Without the grace of God, there go I, right? Amen. Amen. So as Paul spends these first three verses of Ephesians talking about the universal condition of men he is setting it up to where he can now explain the grace and the mercy of God in a much better more full orbed way because it just doesn't seem the same if you tell me that you know man is basically good and man can do good all by himself then why is the gospel good news? If we didn't need help, if we didn't need a new heart, then why did God give us a new heart? It would make conversion seem needless at best. So he explains this and he is setting up to show the greatness of the grace and the mercy of God. And this is where Reformed theology builds its doctrine of God and man and sin and everything else upon is this identification that every man is in this state. And so for man to ever get out of the state, man needs grace. If you know anything about church history, the history of the Reformation, the debate was not over. A lot of people want to paint it that it was over indulgences and um, over whether or not works were necessary, how much a person had to pray, do you have to confess your sins to a priest, and they get all these cartoonish ideas of what the Reformation was supposed to be. But if I had to sum the Reformation up in a nutshell, it would be this. It was over the nature and the sufficiency of grace. 
Because even the Roman Catholic Church, I've heard, I hear so many people straw man the Roman Catholic Church to death when they say Roman Catholics are saved by, believe that they are saved by works and Protestants believe that we are saved by grace. That is not true. Roman Catholics believe that we are saved by grace. But the fundamental difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism is, is the grace of God both the necessary cause and the sufficient cause of our justification. And that is what justification by faith alone answers. And so as we talk about the grace of God, we, or as we talk about the nature of man, we see the necessity for the grace of God. And it's going to go on to highlight not only this necessity that it highlights in the first three verses, and that's why it's there, and that's why we start with the law, but then it's going to go on here in verses 4 through 9 to talk about the sufficiency of grace. Because it is, I said earlier that God gives us everything that we need to live the Christian life. Every, every good work comes from God. Everything that we need comes directly from God. Verse 4 highlights the depth of the grace and the mercy of God. But God, who was being rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Romans chapter 5 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in this. That we were right, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't come to die for a righteous man. Romans 5 again says, you know, a man might scarcely die for a righteous person or for an unrighteous person, but, you know, though for a righteous man, one may even dare to die. But this is the love of God that he sent Christ to die for us while we were ungodly, undeserving of this grace. He demonstrated his love. And so here in verse 4, Paul says, the rich, In the richness of God's mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Guys, salvation is union with Christ. There's little more to it and absolutely no less to it than that. Salvation is union with Christ. What is the difference between us and the people we speak to on the street? We do what? Yeah, we are united to Christ by faith. That is the difference between us and the sinner. So part of my exhortation today is going to be compassionate evangelism. We are not, yes, we are out here talking 
to people who hate our God and His Christ, but they don't hate Him any more than we did before He saved us by grace. They're no more, no less rebellious than we were before God showed us mercy, before we repented and put our faith in God after we've heard the gospel. Yeah. Because even now we're in this flesh that desires everything that's ungodly, that wants to do things that are ungodly, and and even now, but for the grace of God, there go up. Yeah, exactly. If God were to and this and this is the great part about what we were talking about with the perseverance of the saints, is God doesn't do that. But if he were to, if he were to remove his hand, as it were, from me, from my collar. If he were to take that hand off, I, there I go, back into my life of sin, back into my life of wickedness, as far away from God as I can get. And so when we're talking to people and we're, we're presenting the truth of the depth of man's depravity, we have to be sure, we have to be certain that we are presenting this in a way they understand. No, I am not excluded from this. I am not better than you. I am not coming at a position that I'm better than you. But I am coming to you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christ tells me, to, or Christ tells you that you must repent and place your faith in him. I had to do it. You have to do it. That is the fundamental assertion behind Christian theology. We were all born the same, and it all takes the same amount of grace to get anybody anywhere. So we, we talk about Union with Christ, our salvation being union with Christ. And he adds here this parenthetical statement, by grace are you saved, that he'll reiterate later. By grace are you saved. And he hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that it doesn't say he will raise us up. It doesn't say he might raise us up. It says he has raised, raised us up. Past tense. Raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is a done deal. When verse 4 says, but God, it, is, it should be understood that we are not out there telling people, well, you're this way, and you just need to change what you're doing. You just need to, you know, you hate God right now, and you need to not hate God. Stop hating God. Yeah, because we are not out there trying to get people to live a more outwardly moral, clean 
life, although a Christian inevitably will, by the grace of God alone, right? But what good does it do for us to go out there and preach verses 1 to 3 and say, okay, so now do it. Just, just tell them to do it. Just get out there and stop living through the yeah, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get get over the sin thing. What are you thinking? What what are you waiting for? I know what they're waiting for, and if you're a Christian, you know what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the grace of God. When we evangelize, if we get to verses one through three and we never touch four through ten, we have not presented the gospel. A full orb presentation of the gospel includes, yes, the first use of the law. But if you never get to the grace, the mercy, and the love of God, you have not presented the gospel. You have not so much as even begun to present the gospel. I see, I don't know how many of you guys sit on YouTube like I do and watch videos of some of these street preachers out here today. And there are some of them who do great. And there are some of them who don't do so great. They just get out there and they scream and they yell and they'll call you every name under the book. You're a sinner. You're filthy. You need to get right with God. But they will never tell this part of the story. They will never tell Ephesians verse 7. Ephesians verse 7. Er, Ephesians 2 verse 7 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ the foundation of our salvation the very matter of our salvation the very thing that makes up our salvation is the mercy and the grace of God alone and if we don't get to that we are doing a disservice to those who we are attempting to evangelize. And Scripture says that by, if we get out there and we preach the law and we do like the Pharisees do, be like me, be like me, don't do this, don't do that, and we never get to this gospel, we're going to make people twice the sons of hell that we are. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Grace... God's love and grace is the sole foundation of our salvation. It is the ground of our justification. And that is why we as Protestants, we as people who believe in the perseverance of the saints, say that it, it's a sure thing. It's a done deal. Because it is not grounded on what we do. We have, in Protestant theology, we have what we refer to as the five solas. And I, well, they're usually up there on the, on the screen, on the backstop. We see on the, I said backstop, I meant homepage, home yeah. And it's sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. And I want to assert that it matters a great deal what order we put those in. They are in that order for a reason. Yes. 
Our salvation is first and foremost by the grace of God alone. I, I used to, I, I, and I used to make the same mistake. I'd run around all the time and say, I'm saved by faith alone. I'm saved by faith alone. And the first time somebody said, no, you're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. I said, what's the difference? They said, and I, without remembering exactly what they said to me, they explained it. And the way in which they explained it made so much sense to me at the time that without grace, what are you putting your faith in? God has been merciful to you. He has shown you this grace. Grace. I have Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what faith does. Faith is an empty hand that comes to God with nothing. God places in it the gift of Christ's perfect work. And the hand of faith grabs hold of Christ and never lets go. That is abiding faith in Jesus Christ. But, but it's by grace. By grace are you saved. And that brings us to verse 8 where we talk about this. By grace are you saved through faith. We are not saved by faith unto grace or anything like that. We don't believe and then receive the grace. We receive the grace and then we believe. That is why no man can boast. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that sounds silly to some people. Well, who would boast in their salvation? Who would boast in their works? Well, if you think that God has saved you because you have offered something to God, if you think that God has saved you because you have offered up obedience to God, don't you have something to boast about? Think back to Romans chapter 4. I told you to keep your thumb in Romans, and we're going back to Romans. And I'll try to make this quick. I realize it's <laughs> going back to Romans chapter 4. Even as... Uh, Starting in verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision, or only upon the uncircumcision, or, or un, upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? 
when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Proceeding this, it says, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed God and was justified. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If we earn something, if something we do has merited our salvation, then that is not a gift of grace. We have earned that. That is owed to us. And that is why Paul says that it is of grace that no man may boast. Because if it was because of anything in us, we would have ground to boast on. And we can go round and around. And I have been round and around with people who say, oh, well, just because I believe that I'm, you know, partially responsible for my salvation, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that I've earned it. That doesn't mean that I worked for it. That just means that God graciously gave it to me because of my faith. And it's like, but it was still your faith that merited that gift of grace. Well, that's, that's exactly the thing Paul is telling us in, in uh, chapter uh, 4 of Romans, that we don't even get to boast about that faith, okay? Yeah. We don't get to boast about that because Abram received the promise before he was ever faithful to go follow what God said, okay? God had already given him the promise before he ever left the early childhood, before he ever left his father's house, he gave him the promise. He had received that promise, promise. okay? And all we're doing when we, when we respond in faith to Christ is we're responding to something that's already been given to us. Right. Yes. I've heard it. I've heard it pitched this way before: that the the devil or God casts a ballot for you, the devil casts a ballot for you, and you're the deciding factor. You are the one that chooses which way you go. And if that's the case, every per Ephesians chapter two one through three makes it evidently clear. If that's the case, every one of us chooses the devil. 100% of the time. Not 99.1, not 99.8899. No. 100% of the time, if that was the case, if God cast a ballot for us and the devil cast one for us and we're the deciding factor, guess who we choose? Not God. Our rebellious hearts don't allow for that. Our rebellious hearts don't want a Lord. Satan doesn't want a Lord over you. He wants you to rebel against God. On, yeah, on an equal playing field. Yeah. And so that, that is the problem with this. And when we think about it logically, we say, oh, well, if then that is the way that salvation works, and I'm the deciding factor, then yes, I have something to boast about, because I chose to love God. I chose to humble myself. I chose to be humble enough that God... 
owed me salvation. That's what I think the kids today call a humble brag. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, well, God was just so gracious to me that when I believed, he gave me the faith because I believed. No, you were gifted grace. He was merciful to you for all the things that he could have destroyed you for, all the sin in your life prior, all the times you have heard the gospel and you rejected him, all the times that you didn't consider your neighbor, all the times that you didn't consider love for God before anything else, he could have condemned you for. But God, being rich in mercy. And so uh, it, does sound, it does sound a little out there, a little wacky to talk about people boasting in their salvation. But, leave, but believe me, it's done. And Paul here is taking that away. He is taking away any possibility of boasting. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now, now we've got, um, here in this passage, the way that the grammar's set up, because a lot of people will try to read through this and they'll say, well, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. So they say, well, grace and salvation are the gift Faith is our responsibility. But the way that this is written, that last, where it says that, not of yourself, that is cased in the grammar as a neuter, and it is meant to complete the entirety of this thought. So, what's not of ourselves, grace, salvation, or faith? It is the gift of God, not of works. We haven't earned this faith. We haven't worked this faith. Our Baptist Catechism question said that the work of Christ is applied to us by the Holy Spirit working faith in us. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, to, so today as we, as we think about this and we reflect on this and we go and we wrap this up, if you resolve to do anything this year, we talk about New Year's resolutions, I want you to resolve to venture your hope alone upon Christ Jesus. I want you to, I want you to resolve to engage in compassionate evangelistic exchanges with others. Remind yourself where you're coming from. Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and remind yourself. Read Romans 
where he says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. God has done this work in you. Resolve to rest and trust up in the finished work of Christ alone this year. May God bless each and every one of you as we transition. May we come together as a church and be compassionate as we reach out to the lost. There are lost and dying people all around us who do not know Jesus Christ, and they need to. It is their only hope. He is still our only hope. Let's grab a hold of him by faith, rest in it, and instruct others in the same. May God bless you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so thankful for your gift of grace. I am so thankful, Lord, that you have been gracious to me. I am thankful, Lord, for the grace that you have shown to the people in our church. Father, that they might, that they might love you and that they might serve you with holiness of heart because you have put it within them to do so. Father God, as we go forth, I pray, Lord, that we would take with us the truth of this gospel. Father, that we would never let it go, that we would resolve to venture our hope upon Jesus Christ in the year to come, in the years to come. Father God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, draw men and women as we preach the gospel unto them and show them their need for Christ as you work in their hearts to bring them to faith and repentance in your Son who loved us and gave himself for us. Father God, that we would know that that is the only foundation upon which we stand. Father God, I just pray that each of these here today are blessed as they go out into the world, whether they go to work or to school, whether they're retired and they sit at home. Father God, I pray that the peace with you, the peace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord would go with each one of these today. Bless the food as we receive it into our bodies. Let us be more thankful for the giver than the gift. We love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.